Hello, loyal listeners, and welcome to episode 11 of the Anxiety Book Club. In this episode, I'll be discussing with our author, Dr. Judson Brewer, subjective and implicit bias, reward-based learning, and how we can intervene using mindfulness when that goes poorly, smoking, and other addictions, and how to treat them using mindfulness. The question of whether excitement equals happiness, or if it even feels good. How to achieve concentration during mindfulness using curiosity. With that said, please enjoy the episode. Thank you. Okay, hello. Welcome uh, to this month's this month's episode of the Anxiety Book Club, Dr. Judson Brewer. And today we'll be talking about his book, The Craving Mind. Uh, Dr. Brewer is a professor and director of the Mindfulness Center at Brown University. And uh, really happy to have you here. So thanks for joining, Dr. Judd. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. So the first thing I want to say is go Bears, because I actually went to Wash U as an undergrad. Oh, nice. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this book is, it's interesting because uh, I think a lot of the books that we read for the podcast are mostly like, almost like how-to manuals of how to like fix your life. And this one has a lot of science in it, which is uh, refreshing for the podcast. Right, so the book's called The Craving Mind, and the subtitle here is From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Can Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. So I, I guess the the thrust is putting some of the, the teeth in, in maybe the science that undergirds mindfulness or, or meditation or, or how those practices can work in a, in a practical and maybe even a scientific setting for um, helping people to unhook themselves from behavior or, or thought patterns that are, I guess, unhealthy. Is that a fair sort of description of, of the book? Yes. Cool. All right. Well, then I definitely read it. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So one of the main thrusts of the book is that there is a very specific process by which we have come to acquire our behaviors, good ones and and perhaps bad ones. It's this, I think it's called operant conditioning, or it's this three-step cycle of trigger behavior and reward that seems innocent enough when it moves us towards good behaviors, but when it reinforces behaviors that wind up being unhealthy in the long run, it, it can be really hard to back away from them because this this pattern of trigger behavior reward, I guess is sort of how our brains have evolved to do anything well or, or anything with regularity. Is that fair? Yes, that's really the basis of habit formation and habits help us kind of store behaviors that we can make automatic so that it frees up our brain space to learn new things. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why they're so, I guess we mostly hear about bad habits because those are the things people want to get rid of, but it's nice to not have to divert mental energy to the things that we're already good at, like, you know, maybe being nice to each other or exercising if, if that's something that we kind of just do automatically. Right. Um, so another another important concept that's present in the book is this idea of subjective bias. So I have a little sort of thing written here about what I think it is. And that it, based on what I've read in the book, it's it's kind of how we see the world based on this process of operant conditioning of trigger behavior reward. 
seeing some things as good, um, maybe like chocolate cake and other things as bad, maybe like snakes. Um, is that kind of what subjective bias is? Yeah, to a large degree. I mean, you can think of, well, in, I don't, uh, snakes, are. there's probably some inherent uh, recoiling <laughs> from snakes. So, um, you know, we can maybe thinking uh, using spinach or some other food example as, a, as an operantly conditioned behavior, you know, where our parents forced us to eat spinach as a kid. And then we started to associate with it with bad things, you know, like, oh, I don't like spinach. But the basic idea is that uh, if there's something that's that's pleasant and we um, we you know do some behavior to keep that pleasant feeling going, we lay that down as a behavior that then biases our future outlook, and we start seeing the world through you know subjective bias glasses. Basically, you know this is where the terms you know like rose-colored glasses or dark-colored glasses come from, and it basically means that you know we as we uh, learn behaviors and we we form them into kind of habitual memories, um, they start to color how we see the world. So, you know, we, we eat cake a bunch of times and we associate it with, with pleasant feelings and we start wearing cake colored glasses, so to speak. So that when <laughs> we, we see cake, we are just automatically thinking, oh, I should eat some cake because our brain associates that with a, with a good feeling. I see. So, these are this subjective bias is something we all carry around with us, and it's maybe not problematic until we find ourselves in these uh, sort of thoughtless patterns. Perhaps if we have our cake-colored glasses on too often, that like maybe lead us down the road to obesity or or other such um, adverse health outcome. Yes, and these can even happen on a societal level. So this is where. Uh, bias comes in around like racial bias, for example. So if, uh, you know, bad things like villains are portrayed in dark colors, uh, people can become implicitly biased against people with, uh, you know, non-white skin. Uh, so I think we can see it both on a personal level, but we can also see it societally. Well, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so I work for um, a big credit card company and um, as a public-facing company, like so many others recently, they've been really interested in getting on the right side of, you know, recent events, social events. So they've been emphasizing uh, trying to understand these ideas of implicit or subjective bias, which maybe are, are synonymous. Yes. Yeah, I think they're, you know, implicit bias, subjective bias. Um, they're pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. So one thing we've started doing in our, our teams, you know, we're a bunch of software engineers, is highlighting a significant person in tech from one of these marginalized or um, just not like, you know, non-white communities um, with the idea that I guess if we fill our heads with enough examples of people from those communities, uh, we'll somehow, I guess, alter our subjective bias to not automatically uh, link those people with not being in the tech industry or something like that. Um, I don't know if it's going to work, but it's at least something we're doing. Yeah, I, I mean that's a that's a step forward. I, I think ultimately it's really about understanding how our minds work, and if we can understand how our minds work, we can then start to work with them even more efficiently than you know trying to trying to do things like you're you're talking about. Not that those are bad. Uh, but for example, we can start to notice very, very specifically 
when we have slight recoil reactions, for example, and this is anybody, this isn't, I mean, it tends to be mostly white people, but, um, you know, this is, uh, but this can happen with anybody. Even people of color can become conditioned uh, to fear, for example, uh, other people of color, uh, just showing how, how deeply the societal conditioning can happen. So here, and this, this can be broadly applied to many uh, habits, but I'll just use this as an example because it's a very important one and one I would hope that we all are interested in working on. We can start to notice any just even tiny micro movements that we have of recoiling or moving away or even a, a, a mental contraction that happens uh, when we are, you know, like we walk down the street and we see a person of color, you know, walking toward us, we can check in with ourselves. Oh, what does this feel like? Do I, you know, is there any contraction there? Uh, you know, hearing somebody's voice um, that is, you know, somebody uh, African-American, you know, if, if, if it sounds like somebody that's African-American versus sounding like somebody that is, that is white, you know, what does that do to our, our reactions? And, and really starting to notice how much these things are ingrained in all of us so that we can start to identify them very clearly because that identification is the first step toward really uprooting this uh, as compared to just in, you know, trying to insert things or try to help people see, you know, see things, you know, like uh, kind of the example that you gave. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and I definitely appreciate the fact that like this idea that we have for just naming these stories is not, it's not data driven. It's, it kind of just feels like it might work, but um, yeah, I'm interested in um, maybe spending a little bit of time talking about this idea of contraction or, or recoiling, recoiling. Cause I know people who are pretty familiar with mindfulness practice will be familiar with those kinds of terms as like the, you know, contraction is like sort of the closing of your body or, or the, the making smaller of your like physical form when you encounter some thought that makes you feel like scared or bad or something, but maybe it's not um, obvious for people who aren't super well-versed in, in that world. Yes. So you can think of uh, the feeling of contraction as being closed down, for example, and the opposite of that would be opened up or expanded. Uh, so for example, uh, and there are scientific studies showing this where, you know, when people are asked to recall times when they're anxious um, or put in or induced uh, anxieties induced in their bodies, uh, they report that they feel it in their chest. And typically people report this as a, as a closed down or contracted feeling, uh, which makes sense, you know, evolutionarily speaking, if we're being, you know, if we're being um, attacked by a snake, for example, uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to protect ourselves. So there's this closed down protected feeling that's really different than uh, the openness that comes with feelings of joy or connection or, uh, or even curiosity. So hopefully that helps give some operationalization of this. Yeah, I think it does. And it's interesting that um, this idea of like closed versus open is not merely a metaphor. Like it just happens to be the case that when our like torsos are open, that's also being associated here with something positive, like being open to communities that you don't normally um, interact with or, or previously associated with like danger or violence. Right. Right. Cool. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and it's good to, it's good to be talking about these things, obviously, 
so yeah, maybe we'll we'll come back to that idea of the subjective biases, especially given recent events. But I'll keep plodding along with uh, the questions I have written down. Great. Yeah. So being able to study these things scientifically um, is really interesting, and there's a lot in the book of of about your research about using these machines, these fMRI machines, to study what the brain is like, you know, given different stimuli or when someone's meditating or not meditating, or if they're an expert meditator or a novice meditator. Um, and it's cool. I, it's cool in that way to be able to see your practice sort of reflected before you. I had a question. This is kind of like a uh, really for, forward or future looking. And I don't know if people in the scientific community have thought about this or, or thought about it in a practical way, but because mindfulness and meditation a lot of the time seems to helpfully provide you with some distance from your thoughts so that you can see them clearly or, or distance from your feelings so you can see them clearly and, and be able to correct um, something that's not serving you. Are we anywhere close to just having the thoughts being projected like in, in written form on a screen so that we could just, just see them, you know, instead of having to like glimpse them, you know, in, in, in deep periods of, of meditation? It's <laughs> a great question. I think people are working in that direction. I don't know how far they've gotten, uh, you know, but they're certainly moving in that direction. Yeah. And if we have that, do you think we'll still need to meditate? Like, will we be done with it? Yes. I'm not sure that projecting thoughts onto a screen equals changing our relationship to them. So that's, you know, that's really what mindfulness is about is that change in relationship. It might help us see it more clearly. Oh, here's a thought as compared to being identified with it. But ultimately we need to change that, that relationship itself. You know, how am I relating to this thought? That's really where the magic is. Okay. So it's not enough to just notice it. It's something else has to happen. Yes, because we can notice a thought and be attached to it and say, oh, I like it. Or we can be attached to it going away, you know, where we can be averse to it and say, I don't like that. So both of those involve noticing, yet neither of them are actually mindfully relating to them in the sense of, of not being pushed or pulled by them. Huh, that's really interesting. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, okay. We'll, well, maybe we'll come back to that. Um, so this, the work that you've done through your research, and I think also through the business that you started and, and the apps that you've created, have helped people get over some of their addictions, in, including cigarette smoking. The, the recommended process involves this acronym um, called RAIN, which is uh, associated with mindfulness. And it, it sounded like from the results written in the book that it was as good or perhaps better in the long run compared to what was the gold standard before then for helping people quit smoking. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. So the gold standard treatment that we, we did this randomized controlled trial for smoking cessation and compared mindfulness training. So one of the core practices in that, uh, in the mindfulness training was this RAIN acronym. So recognize, allow, investigate, and note. And we found that on the whole, the mindfulness training was five times better than gold standard treatment. In this case, uh, the American Lung Association's freedom from smoking at helping people quit smoking and stay quit. That's awesome. 
I mean, congrats. I mean, that's, that's a great contribution to these people um, who are suffering with, with cigarette addiction. Yes, we are very happy to see those results. Uh, a friend of mine was also reading the book alongside, and we were kind of talking about different questions that might be worth asking. So the, you know, something like cigarette smoking is most people see it as this kind of chemical addiction, like whether or not you're interested in continuing to smoke, there's something going on in your brain, uh, like in this sort of chemical, physical way that drives you towards the cigarette. So how does, how does mindfulness um, affect that part of it? Like, is it the case that you smoke less and then that stuff drops away on its own? Or is there some connection between the mindfulness practice and like those, like very, those chemical um, processes? Yes, we just published a study in 2019 that actually gets at the heart of this question where we wanted to know if this network of brain regions called the default mode network, which has been shown to get activated when people are shown smoking cues, uh, we wanted to see if that was affected by mindfulness training and if it was, if that was related to clinical outcomes. So we, you know, we brought people in to our fMRI scanner, we actually we showed them a bunch of smoking cues. This was in collaboration with Amy Janes at Harvard, who developed this smoking paradigm. And um, at ba after that baseline uh, scan, we randomized them to get app-based mindfulness training, an app called Craving to Quit, or the National Cancer Institute's app for smoking, and then brought them in a month later, scanned them again, same paradigm and check to see if their brains changed and if their brain activity changes could predict clinical outcomes. And lo and behold, we found a very strong relationship between a reduction in activity in this default mode network in these, in these regions activated by you know, smoking cues and clinical outcomes. Um, but that, that effect was specific to the mindfulness training group. There was no correlation between uh, reductions in brain activity and reductions in cigarette smoking in the control group. So that was suggesting that mindfulness training is specifically targeting these you know, default mode brain regions and that people were less likely, you know, the, the idea is, or at least the theory is, that they're able to uh, see these cues uh, they're able to notice cravings and not get caught up in that craving. And as they, you know, as they don't get caught up in craving, that brain activity decreases and that decreased brain activity predicts a reduction in smoking. So this goes back to that subjective bias. You know, people are biased, they see smoking cues, so they're, they're automatically triggered to crave. But we can actually interrupt that cycle with mindfulness training. So it's pretty nice to see the theory line up with the neuro, you know, neurobiological mechanisms and the clinical outcomes. To, to me as a scientist, that's kind of like the holy trinity uh, where you've got theory lining up with brain mechanisms, lining up with clinical outcomes. Right. So you, you know it works and you know kind of why it works. Yes. Right. Yeah, that is great. So it sounds almost if the American Cancer Society's app was also working, but perhaps not as well. There's maybe mul multiple paths to smoking cessation. One is by targeting this default mode network, and and otherwise you could also maybe um, successfully cease smoking without having to target that. Or in the long run, does the default mode network sort of uh, look the same in someone who's 
kind of stop smoking for a long time? It's a good question. We haven't looked at that ourselves, so we don't know the answer to it. Um, but I would say there probably are multiple ways that people can stop smoking. This is just one of them that we've identified. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the podcast a few months ago, we had a therapist from Colorado who specialized in combining ACTS, the acceptance and commitment therapy framework with um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And uh, she and her colleagues found really good results by introducing this mindfulness component to something that's traditionally didn't have it, like cognitive behavioral therapy. So I, I was sort of reminded of that in, in how you have been pairing uh, mindfulness training with other sort of established protocols for like behavior change. Yeah, that is interesting. We have, and we've also uh, done some dismantling studies where we've really looked to see if we could just teach mindfulness training and see if we could get effects that way. And the reason for that is, you know, clinically in my, in my clinic, I see that, you know, if I give my patients a bunch of different things to do or to learn, it's going to actually dilute each of those components. Uh, and so it can be harder for them to learn each of those components well. And at the same time, it's hard to know which component is working. So we've actually taken a minimalist approach more recently where we just teach mindfulness training. We've stopped combining it with other things. And we find that mindfulness training itself is actually working uh, extremely well. This is, you know, for example, in the, the study I just mentioned where we could line it up with brain mechanisms. That was just straight up mindfulness training. This mindfulness stuff seems pretty powerful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it seems to really get at these core mechanisms. And, you know, if you want to target any, any disease, uh, you know, you've got to really find what the mechanism is that's causing it. And if you can identify that mechanism, you're going to be at a much better place to, uh, to get effective treatments, minimal side effects, et cetera. And I think we're starting to see some of that as we learn the mechanisms of mindfulness. It might specifically target these reward-based learning processes or these operant conditioning processes. Mm -hmm. I guess for, from, from the outside, I feel like it, it might be hard to not get carried away with the idea of mindfulness as this sort of panacea. Uh, you know, all these key performance indicators get kicked up by it. It's, it's you know, it's like an iPhone, right? It can do everything. Um, but, but I guess you, you need to still reserve, I guess, some skepticism um, about it. Yes, and I wouldn't say it does everything. I would say where there are mechanisms that involve reward-based learning, mindfulness might be an effective treatment. Uh, where there aren't, you know, it might not be. For example, uh, depression has been shown to involve these processes where people get caught up in rumination, where they perseverate about the past. Anxiety has been shown to act, you know, to, to do similar things, except people are perseverating about the future. And anxiety, for example, has been shown to be uh, reinforced in the same way that smoking is reinforced through operant conditioning. So here, you know, we've even done studies with app-based mindfulness training for anxiety. Here we use an app called Unwinding Anxiety. We got a 63% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in people with generalized anxiety disorder. This was in a randomized controlled trial. So here, you know, we can, you know, again, understanding the mechanism is helpful and we could even identify 
how mindfulness was working mechanistically and that it was actually uh, targeting these, uh, these reinforcement loops. Well, that's something I'm particularly interested in. I mean, the podcast is called the Anxiety Book Club <laughs> and uh, anxiety and OCD are definitely things that I've suffered from for a long time. Um, so I have a question um, because we're basing this on this unraveling of the, the operant conditioning of the trigger behavior reward cycle and mindfulness is leading to uh, decreases in things in the brain, like this default mode network, and maybe just making us see in a little more colloquially, let us see more clearly the thoughts that we're having and, and allowing us to note the ones or notice them all and maybe transform our relationship to them, um, as we were talking about earlier. But in, in the anxiety operant conditioning, in the trigger behavior reward cycle, what What's the reward there? Because I'm, I'm a little confused on that part. Yeah, so it's a good question. And it does seem odd that anxiety would be rewarding. This is where work that's gone back to the 1980s uh, has revealed some really interesting findings. So this guy, T.D. Borkovec at Penn State, uh, provided data showing that anxiety is reinforced uh, in, in this negative reinforcement way in the sense that anxiety or a negative emotion is the trigger, worry is the behavior, and then the result is a feeling of control or even a distraction from that unpleasant emotion itself. So that's the reward is it can feel, you know, it's like, well, if I can't, you know, at least I'm worrying about this. So I feel like I'm doing something which can give people at least a slight sense of control. And, and that's probably, you know, one of the key rewarding aspects of it. I think that's amazing. Um, I think it's amazing because it might be true. And also, I mean, I know for myself as someone who's, who ruminates a lot and rehashes things, obviously the, the process of doing that um, is painful. So it's hard to see the reward, but I think it's only a painful to me now as I've sort of meditated more and I can kind of witness the suffering a little more clearly, maybe uh, in an earlier state. I would maybe see the reward because, because like you said, it's, it's, it, it was maybe even felt productive mm -hmm. to be doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> it is, you know, just like spinning your wheels in the sand, digging yourself in deeper can feel productive because at least your wheels are spinning in your car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it sounded like when you were at the beginning stages of the cigarette research, one thing that you took on personally to see if you could kind of empathize with the, the clients was to meditate for these two hour stretches, because I think that coincided with, I think, how long a craving might last for a cigarette. Um, is that right? Yeah, it's not the craving itself, but it's the half life of nicotine in the typical person. So uh, nicotine, you know, the half life of nicotine is about two hours. And, and as you'll see, or anybody can relate to that smokes, uh, if you watch somebody who's a regular smoker, they'll go out for a smoke break about every two hours. And that's because their nicotine levels are going, getting low in their blood. And then those receptors get a little irritated and they say, you know, you know, tickle me. <laughs> so here, not having ever become addicted to nicotine myself, I wanted to really kind of be able to understand what that quality of restlessness might feel like if I couldn't do something for two hours. And one of the things that <laughs> that is really restlessness provoking is sitting still. 
so I would set the aspiration to sit still for two hours at a time uh, during meditation sessions. And it literally took me months to be able to do that. Uh, but once I could do it once, I, and I knew I could do it, there was this shift, and it, it actually became much easier. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and also, it makes me f- feel more empathetic with people who are cigarette smokers, because I know the feeling of restlessness. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm Mr. Restless, but it's a very powerful feeling. It, it makes you want to quit, you know, mindfulness retreat. It makes you want to jump out of your skin or you know, change the channel uh, on the TV or the radio, but it's restlessness itself is, is so powerful. Yes. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, is it, um, I, you know, since I'm talking to a scientist, I'm kind of like interested here. So we talk about it in this colloquial way, but is restlessness understood as anything more specific than that, like in the brain or something? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to look that up. One thing I do know is that, in the ancient Buddhist psychology, restlessness holds a unique position because it is said to underlie all of the 12 unwholesome mind states, if I remember that correctly. And so if you look at anger, if you look at you know whatever the other 11 unwholesome mind states are, uh, it's said that restlessness is a shared characteristic of all of those. If you look from a kind of an evolutionary perspective, uh, and you look at how dopamine works in the brain, dopamine firings is fascinating because when we get an unexpected reward, or, um, that dopamine fires to tell us to remember you know, what that was and where to find it. It's, it helps us learn context-dependent memory. So you know, for our, our ancestors out on the savanna looking for food, as they were searching for food and they found food, they would get dopamine firing that says, okay, remember this spot. But that dopamine firing started shifting from when they got that food in that spot to anticipating getting that food. So when they have this urge or this craving, there would be this restlessness that said, hey, you know, get out of the cave or whatever and go get the food. So it's actually uh, drives motivated behavior. So here, you know, I, I'm guessing that restlessness uh, has something to do with dopamine firing, but I don't, I can't give you anything more specific than that. Okay. So for our ancestors on the Savannah, which, you know, I, I wonder if their cheeks are blushing at how often we seem to be referencing. Yeah, them. I know. I know. <laughs> um, so the dopamine firing became evolutionarily like sort of present, I guess, so that, you would get out of the cave and go get the food because it wasn't enough um, just to be able to remember that when you ate the food, you would get that reward. Right. Well, knowing where food is doesn't equal it getting in your belly. <laughs> you have to you have to be driven to go out and get it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that reminds me of something else in the book where it sounded like the dopamine, and I know I'm using these terms and I don't really know anything about them, but this chemical dopamine um, you seem to get a dose of it when you get the ping of the text message, and then maybe you get another dose when you actually read the text message. Is that fair? Uh, it depends. So certainly when you get the ping of a, a message saying you've got a new text, uh, that, that's that been shown pretty consistently to activate the dopamine system. 
Uh, but you're not necessarily going to get a dope, you know, dopamine firing when you actually read a text. It's more related to the anticipatory effect once you've learned the behavior. So once you've learned to read your text messages. Okay, so it's kind of like the thing that gets us out of the cave, but you might get there and the text might suck and, and therefore you won't get the dopamine. Right, right. But if it's something unexpected, uh, then it might, you know, you might get some dopamine firing with that. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I feel like I've heard about, you know, dopamine and this just from, you know, being alive and taking a bio class or something. But now to be talking about it in a specific way, um, it's really interesting that it's much deeper than, than I've thought about it before. So uh, one, one group of people that you've treated are people that are addicted to crack, or I guess crack cocaine is perhaps the way to say it. Um, and you described... Uh, from, I guess, interviewing them or talking to them, their experience of maybe searching for it and then getting it as not being associated with like bliss, but instead them reporting like jitteriness and um, maybe irritability. And I feel like that's so counterintuitive because when I think of crack and I, I haven't done it, but I assume it's amazing. So why, why isn't it a great um, sort of situation when they're when they're high and, 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 and all that. Yeah. So often, I mean, it can be, it, and, uh, let's say somebody uses cocaine, there can be the, um, the high that comes from that, but that quickly, as somebody becomes dependent upon it, that quickly shifts from, you know, having that intoxication to, um, being in deficit and then they're using drugs just as a way to get back to baseline. And that's the piece. And then on top of this, <laughs> cocaine, especially uh, when somebody's really addicted or is using crack cocaine, uh, they'll, they'll typically describe it as feeling restless when they use it. They'll um, antsy, paranoid. Uh, that's a common thing that people get is they become paranoid when they're uh, using cocaine. So none of these, as you're pointing out, are, are, are very pleasant, but that's not, you know, that's not the way that the movies portray cocaine. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So they're trying to come back from a deficit at some point, maybe the first time they tried it, it was great, but then yes. quickly they become, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. It co all these, all this time, cocaine had such a good reputation in my mind and now <laughs> I can see it for what it is. Um, so that leads me to my chief, I wouldn't say, I don't know, complaint or criticism, but the thing I really wanted to ask you about is that there's this idea, and it's, it's not just in this book, but it's sort of in mindfulness in general, but expressly pointed out in your book that when we, when we look towards excitement, or maybe that's synonymous with like seeking dopamine with like fulfillment or happiness or something, we're really we're really barking up the wrong tree. And I, I didn't know what to do with that because I never considered, and I, I'm not so familiar with like the Buddhist canon, but I never considered um, excitement as something to not try to grasp towards. Like if I'm, if I have a new friendship or I have a trip that I'm excited about, or, you know, I'm going to go play basketball. Like these are all things that excite me, but I, I feel like in the book, excitement kind of gets a bad rap. Can you say more about that? Yes, and I wouldn't say excitement itself is inherently bad. Uh, what we can explore 
is to see if we're if we basically become excitement junkies. So excitement can drive motivated behavior. It probably uh, is associated with dopamine firing, and so we can actually, you know, this we can look at excitement itself and ask, well, how <laughs> how good does this actually feel? You know, when I'm anticipating getting on the roller coaster or getting that kiss or you know, doing something risky, um, you know, we can look and typically excitement has restlessness underlying it. So then the question is, well, how exciting is excitement or how, you know, how good does excitement feel? And we have to, this is a relative thing. We have to compare it to other mind states. So here, you know, well, you tell me, um, if you had to pick one and have it, you know, this mind state for the rest of your life, would you rather have excitement or joy? So if you feel yeah. into both of those, which one feels better? Uh, I mean, I know what the right answer is. No, no, no. From oh. your own experience, there's no right answer. You know, I, I obviously joy is great and I, and I have experienced joy. I like it. Um, I just associate excitement with so many of the things in my life that provide me direction and um, have led to things that I now consider to be uh, like important parts of my life or maybe things that even bring me joy. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I hear what you're saying. I I guess I just kind of felt like it was kind of whole cloth being um, uh, maligned. Oh, yeah, and, and it certainly wasn't my intention. Uh, the idea is to just encourage people to explore this. Many people just assume that excitement equals happiness. Yet, if, the, if that has not been explored or examined, uh, they, might be in, you know, they might be in for a surprise when they actually explore. You know, how good does excitement actually feel? Oh. Yeah, it's, a, it's, really, it's really amazing. It's really interesting. So, like, for people... Well, let's say for people who don't explore it and just automatically assume that they like excitement, um, can we say to them that like the thing they think they're enjoying, they actually aren't? No, you can't tell it. I mean, you can tell people things intellectually, but it's not going to change behavior. People really have to feel this in their own direct experience. That's the only way that behavior changes. You know, the, the thinking mind doesn't hold a candle to the feeling body. The feeling body is really what drives everything. So we, we can, you know, you, you can, it's kind of like uh, telling somebody, you know, what a, a rose smells like, you know, you can try to explain it to somebody, but until they actually smell the rose, you know, they're not going to know. Yeah. So encouraging, um, you know, people to get out there or, or, or get inside and, and sit down and, and really explore these things. So I have a question about rain or what you might call informal mindfulness practice, like non-cushion based sort of like in the moment interventions. I've read a bunch of books that like loosely um, have adopted some of the components of mindfulness for these sort of ad hoc uh, interventions you might do. Like I I have a, a sticky note on my mirror in my bathroom and it tells me to just brush my teeth, you know, like when I'm in there, just brush the teeth. And I think all those are really good pointers. Um, and you've done this in a clinical setting, so maybe it's a little different. But can can people adopt these in-the-moment mindfulness practices without 
also needing to put in the daily sit? Like, how, how effective is that? Well, our, our clinical studies suggest that the informal practices are, uh, have stronger effects than the formal practices. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that one can completely discard the formal practices. I, I personally think that both are useful, but they really, you know, it depends on the person, depends on the situation, et cetera. And even if you look at the, you know, the, the tr- different traditions, they, t- they, place emphasis on different aspects of experience. So for example, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's this phrase, short moments, many times, where they really encourage people to you know, practice mindfulness in their daily life for short moments throughout the day. And that's actually how you form a habit, is it's doing something many times throughout the day. It's hard to form a habit by doing something once, uh, you know, for, even if it's a sustained period of time, uh, once a day, for example, is certainly not harmful. But if you really want to be able to develop a habit around something, you need to practice it in context and with repetition. So if somebody wants to be mindful around brushing their teeth, for example, uh, you know, <laughs> they could meditate and see how well it helps them be mindful when brushing in their teeth, or they could compare that to being mindful while brushing their teeth. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think I was like uh, sort of holding on really tightly to the idea that as long as I sit enough by sort of some osmosis, it'll bleed in. And it does, obviously, in some certainly bleed into the rest of your life. But if you're trying to target specific things, um, for example, like brushing your teeth and obviously actually making that attempt like on the margin in the moment uh, might be more effective. I guess I guess the reason I I ask is because that almost seems harder, right? Like if I have to remember to do rain every time, you know, my mom says something that upsets me or something, it, it it's it's another thing like I have to do during my day. Whereas if I, all I need to do is like sit on the cushion for thirty minutes in the morning, um, I guess that just seems like a, a a smaller price to pay. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it. Another way to look at it is, you know, if we're caught up in, let's say we're anxious or something, we're caught up in anxiety. Well, we're, we're anxious in that moment. And so we could practice mindfulness or we could not practice mindfulness. So it doesn't necessarily add, you know, any extra time. It just adds a a little bit of a shift in emphasis, bringing some curiosity, for example, uh, to the anxiety. And that, you know, that's ultimately how that anxiety habit is going to get unwound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think there's, there's a lot of validity there. And I, I know from my own life and practice that it's much easier to be mindful when you're meditating than during your daily life. Sure. Well, that's um, why they call it mindfulness practice compared to mindfulness perfect or one and done or whatever. Yeah, it, it, it takes practice. Yeah. So there's, there's something there's, I have like two more pages of notes that we're not going to get to, but I'll just try to highlight some of the stuff that really stood out to me. Um, There's something on page 168 and it's, it's, it's something I've never seen before and it's instructions for how to achieve concentration during meditation. And I have it written down here. And the first one is bringing the mind to the object, keeping the mind with the object, finding, having interest in the object, being happy, content with the object. And then finally, I guess the most mystifying one, 
um, unifying the mind with the object. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like where this instruction like sort of comes from and maybe, maybe if you could say a little bit about the last step there, which I, I guess is the spookiest one. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that comes from the classic commentaries. Uh, from the, I believe, the Vasudhi Maga, the Path of Purification, which is a fifth century commentary on the Pali Canon. And basically it highlights uh, the, the idea that if you bring together the right conditions, concentration naturally arises on its own. So there, you know, bringing, and actually I find more accessible instructions around there's another list of things called the seven factors of awakening and the this list is actually taught in a particular order uh, one of the first one is is mindfulness so this is similar like you know bringing awareness to the object the second of the seven factors of awakening is uh, i think the term is dhamma which can be loosely or liberally translated as curiosity and when you bring those two together, when you pick an object and you get curious about it, it's actually much easier to focus on it. You know, when you're when you're interested, when you're curious. So, you know, as we become interested uh, in something, it it takes no effort um, to pay attention because we're interested. And as we get really really interested, we um, the the identific the the idea of the self, you know, like I am focusing on the object starts to fall away because we can just feel right into the physical experience and the mental experience of curiosity of being aware of the object. And my interpretation of that instruction is as we, you know, get more and more curious, uh, we're, there's less and less bandwidth for our brain to be, saying, I'm thinking this, I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm paying attention to this. And there's just awareness of the object. And so that may be where unification happens, you know, or one pointedness uh, is another way to translate that. Um, it, that's, you know, all of that comes from awareness and curiosity, uh, bringing those two factors together. I don't know if that helps clarify uh, that, that or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it highlights for me something I've heard many times before, but hadn't spent so much time thinking about, which is trying to get curious um, and how that might build up like a sufficient blockade from, you know, the, the tyrannous thoughts of like the angry, you know, whatever tyrant in there saying, I want to think about this or like you didn't do this correctly. Mm -hmm. um, like it seems like a really interesting thing to try to leverage. Um, I don't know if there is a specific recipe for how exactly you might decide that something's interesting or, or what the recipe for building curiosity is, but, um, maybe something to contemplate. Yeah, it is. And I, I, you know, if I were to think of any, you know, pick any superpower, uh, that would change somebody's life, it would be curiosity itself because it's, you know, it's something that we all have as an innate capacity, we can all get curious. And uh, one thing, you know, so I, I often teach people this mantra, uh, which is, which is, hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, that's something that, and, and it's actually 
uh, different languages, people use a slightly different enunciation of that, but it's some version of, hmm, when somebody's curious about something, you know, somebody, if you ask somebody, hey, you know, which of your hands feels warmer than the other? You go, hmm, I don't know. And then you pay attention to your hands and see which one feels warmer than the other. So there are, there are actually relatively simple ways to bring out that capacity of curiosity, that, that hmm, mantra is a good one. And then I like the simple question, you know, if we're not feeling curious, we can get curious about what it feels like not to be curious. So like, oh, what's it feel like not to be curious? And then we're curious. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. Um, I've never had uh, a conversation at this depth about this really very specific part of mindfulness. Um, it's really interesting. It reminds me like when you're doing a body scan and uh, which is, you know, a meditation where you're encouraged to like focus your attention on different parts of the body and the person who is recorded, it might say something like, and now we're in your brain. <laughs> How does it feel to be in your brain? Or if there's no feelings, what's that like? And I, I guess when that happens, I, I don't know what to say or, or I don't know what to think, but uh, yeah, it'd be cool to, to be able to try to cultivate that a little more. Um, Certainly so maybe something like, to be curious okay. about. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. So we only have a few a few minutes left. So maybe I'll just let you um, sort of highlight some of the the places that you exist online. Or I know you have uh, apps for for eating, and you mentioned one for anxiety. Um, and obviously, this book, The Craving Mind, and the the work that you're doing at Brown. But um, is, is there something you want to plug or talk about? Oh, yeah, a simple way to find out more about our research and about you know, books and, and apps and things. I just have a website called drjud.com. And I also have a YouTube channel. I, I put out a bunch of videos around anxiety around the coronavirus pandemic, for example, that folks can look up. And that's also that's on YouTube, also under Dr. Judd, D-R-J-U-D. So that, those are the, probably the two easiest places to find about our work, find out about our work. Awesome. Well, this went really, really quickly, um, which I guess is a good indication of something. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Judd. It's been a real pleasure uh, reading your book and talking to you today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.